Well, you can open your Bibles this morning to James chapter 1. And we're not starting over. We just finished uh, 41 messages through James. And we're not going to do that again. But before we leave James and move on to study another book of the Bible, I've been wanting to do a final message in review. And last week at the Shepherds Conference, I ran into some of the guys from New Zealand and they're starting a new effort to reach the people of Oceania for training using uh, online videos. Makes way more sense given how spread out they are. And so they were filming some pastors, just little interview clips, and they asked me to film one. And I told them I just finished preaching through James the previous Sunday. And so they asked me, after having literally just finished James, what's it all about? What's the main point or the main thrust of James? And the answer came right to my mind. It was fresh in my mind, filmed the little video in one take. It was an easy question. But I realized I could not have answered that so easily before preaching through James. I know that's kind of an obvious point. And of course, you're going to know something a lot better after having studied it for a year. But then why do we do these overview messages before studying the book? I do that. I'll keep doing that because it's nice to get a preview of what's to come. But there's no comparison between a preview and a review. What would teach you more about a movie? A preview of the movie or a review of a guy who just saw it? Naturally, you gain a much more intimate knowledge after the fact. It's kind of like looking at a map. I remember going to Vermont a couple of years ago and looking at the map to see how long it would take to go from Killington to Woodstock. How long is that drive? What's that drive like? What are the roads like? You can learn a good amount by studying the map, but you know, you learn a lot more by just going there and driving the road. And you can describe the drive in much greater detail. And so it goes for setting a book of the Bible. Preview messages are great. But I think especially for a book like James, a review message is going to be really beneficial. Especially since James, as you know, it can appear sporadic. He's all over the map. So many subjects. A final message and review to, to bring it together. And along those lines, we've spent most of our time looking not at the forest, but at the trees. I mean, we were going down to one verse, two verses at a time, looking at, at all the details. And before this review, I, I wanted to make sure you, you walk away with the big picture. I want you to understand what the forest of James is all about. This is going to be no mere mental exercise, because as you should know, James is all about doing. You just can't escape practical application with James, but a way to just bring together that big picture. And so that's what we'll do. A final message, a final review, and a simple outline to help capture the essence of James from number one, the circumstances of James to secondly, the concerns of James. And then thirdly, the call of James. And so let's, let's get started with first the circumstances of James. And here by circumstances, I'm talking about the setting, the backdrop of James. And this has a lot to do with the original audience. You're not going to get very far in your understanding of James if you don't understand the the circumstances or the setting of the people to whom he was first writing. So what do you remember about James's original audience? Like James chapter 1 verse 1. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. To the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. You recall James is writing to these Jewish Christians, and they're scattered abroad. 
It's believed that James writes his letter very early on. We're talking the mid-40s AD, making this the first book of the New Testament written. The first church was located in Jerusalem, but early persecution sent these Christians running, and they were scattered throughout Syria and Palestine. Meanwhile, James himself stayed in Jerusalem. He had become one of the pillars of the Jerusalem church, himself being the half-brother of the Lord. He basically was like their senior pastor, and he's writing to many who very well may have been his former sheep. Now, the words of Scripture present to us timeless truth, right? But these, these timeless truths are apprehended not apart from the original setting, but through the original setting. And so let's ask further, you know, what more do we know about the setting or the circumstances of James's original audience? Is actually very important. And overall, their circumstances were those of suffering. Essentially, you know, sums up their circumstances, those of suffering. It's his first concern, chapter 1, verse 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. These Christians were encountering various trials. What kind of trials are we talking about? Well, we already know they were dispersed and scattered far from home. I mean, how would you like it if you were kicked out of your home and forced to flee to a foreign country where you had to start over from scratch? That's a trial just in itself. And furthermore, once dispersed, it's not like their persecution disappeared. Now, granted, at this time, Christians were not being killed for their faith. Not really. The widespread killing of Christians would come later. At this early stage, we're talking more social and economic persecution. That still presents quite a trial. Unfair treatment. The loss of rights and privileges. Social injustice. Christians were on the losing end. And these circumstances are confirmed by the internal picture James paints. We know that back then, the vast majority of these first Christians were extremely poor. Not like affluent American Christians today. They had a few rich in their midst, but most were just dirt poor. And surely that poverty itself was one of their various trials. But to make matters worse, they were suffering from a really impression, or rather oppression and injustice by the rich. You go to chapter 5, and we'll, we'll be flipping all through James, but it's a short book, so you're like turning one page. James 5, he rebukes the wicked rich who are taking advantage of the poor believer. Recall verses 4 through 6. He says, Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields, and which has been withheld by you, cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You fatten your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. The picture is the, of these wealthy landowners who were you know, taking advantage of the poor brethren. And any appeal to the courts went unheard. There's no justice in the land, at least not for these Christians. In fact, the, the courts had become a tool in the hands of the rich by which they could just get away with whatever they wanted with impunity. He points out, Back in chapter 2, verse 6, he says, Is it not the rich who oppress you 
and personally drag you into court. It's a frightening thing when the courts, which should be a a neutral arbiter of justice, become pawns in the hands of the rich, just get away with their schemes. He adds in verse 7 of chapter 2, Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you've been called? The name of Christ was held in no regard. And so these Christ followers were ridiculed, shamed, despised. They suffered social consequences for following Christ. And they were ostracized from the Jewish world and the Roman world. So these are just some of the various trials afflicting these early believers. And as a result, they were suffering. James begins and ends his letter, these bookends of addressing them in their trials, in their suffering. These were people who were having a hard time in life. They were afflicted, beat down, oppressed, weary. All largely due to living in a dark land. Like this little pocket of believers were huddled together like a small candle flame. But the surrounding darkness threatened to snuff them out. And he writes, obviously, then to encourage them. And you hear all this, and you think about the circumstances of James's original audience. Does it sound relevant to you? We're not first century Jewish Christians, obviously, but really, how different are our circumstances today? And for a couple of centuries, America has known a culture of Christianity where Christians have not lived in an overwhelming atmosphere of darkness that opposes our very being. That has its advantages. But as you know, this cultural Christianity is starting to fade in America, which, by the way, is a good thing because it will purify the church. But this means the landscape is growing darker. Our nation is growing darker. Society is making a hard left turn into darkness and wickedness and immorality. And as you recall, Jesus said, the darkness hates the light. Meanwhile, there will be increasingly smaller groups of disciples who follow the Lord and aim to live in the light. And as a result, they will become the primary targets of the darkness. And do you think we're very far away from that? Already some are losing their jobs, their reputation, their status for following Christ, for living in the light. Injustice is permeating. So, I would say these various trials, they're still going on. And they always are. And in some shape or form, in any age, Christ followers are going to encounter various trials. The circumstances of James's letter have application to every Christian in every age. But I really think given our day and age, this is all the more relevant what they were going through and what we ourselves are, are going to face. That means what James has to say in response is going to be extra relevant as well. Before we get to that, though, we need to identify his main concerns in writing this letter. And these will likewise prove quite relevant. So, secondly, the concerns of James. The concerns of James. What do I mean by concerns? I have to clarify something. Yes, the, the circumstances of his readers were those of suffering, That's not his concern. That's not really his concern. He's not concerned that they're encountering various trials because that's that's not unexpected. That shouldn't be a surprise. That's normal. That's expected. 
Second Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Or as Christ said in John 15.20, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. This should be nothing new. This is an expected part of discipleship, part of living in a fallen world that, that hates the light, part of picking up your cross to follow Jesus. He was hated and rejected by the world. And what do you expect? Expect various trials. That's not his concern. His concern is not simply that they were suffering. Rather, his concern was how they were responding to all the various trials and their circumstances of suffering. What were they doing about it? How were they responding? All the pressure they were under was exposing some weak spots. It was bringing some concerns to the surface. And a few weeks ago, I threw together some two-by-fours and built a little ceiling-mounted bike rack in my garage so we can mount the bikes up above the car. Yeah, just bolt them together, put on some hinges, you know, a rope, a pulley, attach it to the cross beam, and there you go. We can now put the bikes above the car, out of the way. But as I put it together, it seems strong. But when I put the bikes on it and it was under load, under pressure, you see some of the, the stress and the pressure and I see that the stress it's putting on the hinges. And I thought, that's kind of a weak spot. I better go with the heavy-duty hinges. And I don't want this thing like falling on the car out of nowhere. And so, look, pressure has a way of bringing out the weak spots. It shows like, where are the concerns here? When you're under load, when you're under burden. And James sees these believers, they're under burden. And some of their weaknesses are, are coming out. He's got some concerns how they're handling all this pressure of living in a dark world. And to summarize, he has three big concerns. Three main concerns. Concern number one, worldliness. Worldliness. Christians are those who are called out of the world, meaning they're no longer aligned with the world system. They no longer share the values, beliefs, and desires of the world. Instead, they are aligned with the Lord and his kingdom. They are the called out ones, called to be separate. This world lives in rebellion against God. We, we can show them love, but we can't show them allegiance. But when faced with adversity and given the weakness of the flesh, it's, it's so easy to compromise. And some Christians adopt, a, if you can't beat them, join them mentality. We know that the darkness hates the light. So if you're going to shine white hot in your passion for the Lord, you're going to get the most hatred from the world. But what if you just like dim things down a little bit? So take it easy. Just go a little gray. Just resemble the world a little bit. They'll hate you less. Just be like them to a degree. You know, you won't lose your job. Or that family member won't shun you. Or you won't be ridiculed. There are temptations like this to compromise in every age. And there are Christians who do so in every age. They play both sides. They want to be in the church, but they want to be friends with the world at the same time. After all, part of them is still very comfortable with the world. Their flesh loves the world and all that is in it. But they get something out of church, so they think they found a happy medium. This presents a big concern for James. Because he knows friendship with the world is not possible for a true Christian. 
There's, there's no gray area. It's black and white. Look at chapter 4, verse 4, a key verse. He calls them out. He says, you adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You have to choose whom you serve. Do you follow Christ or not? Are you still living in the domain of darkness or have you been transferred to the kingdom of light? Which is it? There's no straddling the fence. And if you do, well, that indicates you're, you're still in the darkness. Like we read 1 John 1, 5 and 6. God is light. In him, there's no darkness at all. And if we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. This concern should be shared by all believers. Yes, we must still live in the world. We must love those in the world, witness to the world. Let your light shine. But you also need to keep yourself unstained by the world. You are no longer to share in their rebellion against God. James says back in chapter 1, verse 27, another critical verse. He says, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. What's in the world? John tells us the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. These aren't from God. So if you love the world and all that is in the world, if, that's, if that love is in you, John tells us that the love of the Father must not be in you. The true faith is an either-or proposition. You're either all in in following Christ or you're all out. And so when you see a professing Christian straying back into the world, like a child wandering into the street, that should concern you. That's a place of danger. You don't belong there. So this is the nature of James's first concern. Worldly wisdom was infecting the church. We learned that at the end of chapter 3. And the resulting worldliness marked a dangerous trend. And this, in fact, feeds right into his second concern. Concern number two, selfishness. Concern number two, selfishness. What's the worldview of the world? What is life about to those in the world? Self. Self. What's the goal of life? To please self. Fallen man is pretty much defined by this service of self. This is championed by the world. Wisdom from below says it's all about you. Life is about you. Your happiness matters above anything else. I mean, forget God and his ways. You've got to go your own way. Do what makes you happy. The Christian worldview is opposite. Life is about God, his exaltation, his worship, his enjoyment through his son, Christ Jesus. In fact, we find our greatest fulfillment in him. The pursuit of self apart from God, that's vain. It's empty. It leads only to suffering and dissatisfaction. Rather, the call for us is to deny self, follow Christ. In that self-denial, there's a remarkable peace and joy and satisfaction. That's, that's good news. 
It leads to the true love of others as well, because you're no longer just living for yourself. But Christians who are being influenced by the beliefs and values of the world, they're going to find their selfish desires growing. It's like having weeds choking out your garden. You wonder like, why do these weeds keep growing? And meanwhile, you're feeding and fertilizing and watering the weeds. Like, hello, you know, stop feeding the weeds. Likewise, stop feeding your flesh with worldliness. It's only going to encourage the growth of all of your selfish desires. And when this happens, this was happening to these Christians, evidently. And the result is no surprise. is conflict. Division, conflict, and strife was characterizing their lives. And that, that's going to just exacerbate their various trials. They're not united. Whenever selfishness reigns, unity falls. And so in chapter 3, verse 14, he convicts them of bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. These are heart attitudes that are directly fed into by this wisdom from below. And then he adds this, James 3.16. He says, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. He goes on, look at chapter 4. One through three. It says, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures which wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend it on your pleasures. What's a picture? Pictures of these selfish, self-centered people. They're driven just by their own lusts and pleasures. And this is putting them into conflict with one another. Big surprise, just like those in the world. This is concerning, isn't it? The church should be markedly different. This is concerning. And their selfishness was exposing itself in other ways. Take, for example, partiality. Remember that from chapter 2. He says in 2.1, my brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. Many were showing favor and preference to the rich and powerful because you know, those relationships might benefit them. Meanwhile, they were dishonoring and demeaning the poor because you know, what are they going to get from them? You know, visiting orphans and widows, what for? How's, what's that going to do for me? But you see, this attitude of selfishness was spreading in the church like a cancer. It's making the whole body sick and just resulting in partiality, judgmentalism, slander. It's tearing the church apart. And these are real concerns. And then finally, concern number three, steadfastness. Steadfastness from worldliness to selfishness now steadfastness. And by this, I mean endurance. These early believers were encountering various trials, hardship, oppression. They were losing land, losing property, losing wealth, losing court battles. They just kept losing. They kept suffering. And in response, what were they supposed to do? Well, he says you're supposed to 
Count it all joy. You're supposed to see God's good hand in it all. He's working it out for good. You're supposed to just patiently endure. That's what you're supposed to do. But not all of them were doing that. It's pretty clear. It seems evident that some, if not many, were not counting it all joy. And that some, if not many, were not patiently enduring. They weren't trusting the Lord. They were not rightly responding. Instead, some, if not many, were growing weak and weary and just outright spiritually depressed because of their various trials. This picture comes into sharp focus at the end of chapter 5, where he calls on the elders and really the whole church to come around these weary believers for prayer and encouragement that they might endure. At the same time, though, some were so weak and afflicted and depressed that they just couldn't take any more, and they, they were thrown in the towel. They, they were giving up and falling away. Like the seeds sown on rocky places, they, when, when persecution or affliction arises because of the word, they fall away. And there were some who were not being steadfast in the faith. And that's the most serious of concerns. Not finishing the race is fatal. It's a big concern. So you think about these three main concerns, worldliness, selfishness, steadfastness. And I'll ask again, they sound relevant. You think these concerns are merely restricted to the early church. When I read this, it sounds like a description of the modern church. The same concerns still exist today. Many in the church are still being overly influenced by the world. Selfishness is breeding in their hearts. And some are not enduring. They're not counting it all joy. And to this, it means to James that something is wrong with their faith. These concerns give evidence of a greater problem where we all struggle and stumble in many ways. But if these concerns persist and they grow and they multiply, there's a bigger problem here. There's something wrong with their faith. And this leads us now finally to number three, the call of James. We get now to the main call, the call of James. Understanding the circumstances and the concerns, now you can make better sense of the call, the, the central call. He's concerned that something is wrong with their faith. And what's wrong? It's not their doctrine. It doesn't seem like in James there's really anything big wrong with their doctrine. James, it's not like Galatians, for example, where he's got to write to them at length to correct some false teaching or misunderstanding. No, we don't get any hints at widespread false teaching among James's readers. Their problem with their faith is not their beliefs. The problem is with their actions, their doing or lack thereof. And listen, to James and to the Lord, To not live according to the faith, that is a problem with your faith. Faith is not simply what you know. Knowing the truth of Jesus and hearing the gospel are not enough. You must believe. You can't just hear it. You have to actually believe it. And then here's the thing. That true belief, that true faith will show itself 
not merely in signing off on a doctrinal statement, but in a radically changed life. The way you live shows the truth about what you really believe. I say that again. The way you live shows the truth about what you really believe. And through James, we've said many times, you are saved by faith apart from works. But the faith that saves gets to work. It's always accompanied by works. You are saved by faith alone. But the faith that saves is never alone. It always comes with works, a changed life. But what if you have people who claim to believe in Jesus, but they're not living that radically changed life? What about those who, they don't really evidence any you know, good works or new living? Well, again, it shows something is wrong with their faith. And this applies to James's readers. So if you had to sum up all of his concerns with them and their faith, it would be that they were double-minded. Double-minded. They were two-faced. This comes from back chapter 1, verse 8. He warns them against being a, the double-minded man, unstable in all their ways. And that if you remember the word daisukos, it literally means two-souled, double-souled. Like there's two of them. One who follows the Lord, one who follows the world. That They're double-minded. This is the person who is playing church. They make a profession of faith. They have a religious appearance about them. But they're still in love with the world. And the things of the world. They're trying to play both sides. You know, have a little church in their life. But still live like the world. And as a result, they're unstable. It's like being in a canoe. And you keep shifting your weight from one side to the other. Like, you're going to tip over. And this doesn't work with God. He wants total devotion. And he demands 100% commitment. Discipleship is an all-or-nothing proposition. Where Christ said, the one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not worthy to be his disciple. That God wants a pure bride. When you marry someone, do you expect 100% faithfulness from them? Yeah, I mean, would you be okay if, you know, 50%, half the days of the year they went to be with someone else? No. Even if they went astray one day, it would be too much. And so it is with God. He wants a totally pure and devoted bride. And he's, he's worthy of that. He's good enough to satisfy us entirely. But how often we flirt with the world. and How often we go astray. And all of us commit adultery. Spiritual Adultery, like he said in chapter 4, verse 4, you adulteresses. He's speaking spiritually. Don't you know, this mere friendship with the world is hostility toward God. Then he says this in verse 5, of chapter 4. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. This verse speaks of God as our creator He made us. He gave us our spirit. We belong to him. And in redeeming us in Christ, we doubly belong to him. And he's pictured here as a jealous spouse, 
jealously wanting all of us. For God, that's a righteous jealousy. He's worthy of all of us. But like a spouse, he wants pure, unadulterated worship from us. And not just on the outside. Going through the motions is not enough. Is that enough love from your spouse? You're, you're content if they merely go through the motions of loving you, but they don't really love you from the heart. Is that enough? You want your spouse to love you from the heart? And so God wants us to love him with all of our heart, mind, soul, strength. Not 50%, not 99%, but 100% of your heart, mind, soul, strength given to him. He's worthy of that. This is what he rightly demands of the church. But this is a problem. Because who does this? Right? Who loves God with 100% of their heart all the time? Who does this even for five minutes at a time? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so like James says, we all stumble in many ways. That we are all to some degree, double-minded. Every time we sin, we're betraying our divided loyalties. That's a problem. What are we to do about this? Well, as he told his readers, as often as you stray, great or small, repent and return. Still in chapter 4, turn back to God. Swear full allegiance to him and his ways. Look at verse 7. He says, submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. You, double-minded. So you put it together, if their problem was double-mindedness, and if our problem is double-mindedness, mindedness. And James's central call is a call to what? It's a call to single-mindedness, to single-minded faith. It's a call to pure devotion to the Lord, which is akin to a true and living faith. The call of James is a call to a single-minded living faith. The call of James is a call to a single-minded living faith. And living faith doesn't know anything else. Living faith doesn't know divided devotion. Living faith is sold out to the Lord. Living faith, therefore, follows the Lord. Living faith shows itself, even proves itself in, well, being alive. Living a life God's way. And this explains the, the, the key verses in James, like chapter 1, verse 22. But prove yourselves doers of the word. And not merely hearers who delude themselves. It's not enough to know. It's not enough to hear. And don't be a forgetful hearer. That merely displays that the, the word is not implanted into your heart. You be an effectual doer of that word. And that displays you believe. Also, back to 1, 26 and 27. He says again, if anyone thinks himself to be religious, and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart. This man's religion is worthless. 
Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God our Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their distress. And to keep oneself unstained by the world. A man may think himself religious. He may make religious claims. Go to church. Listen to a sermon. And take a few notes. Sing a few songs. Nod in approval. He can believe all the right doctrine. But if his life evidences no self-control over his speech, no concern for the needy, no separation from the world, his religion is good for nothing. His faith is of no value. And that's because it's not living. It's dead and worthless. And if your life after becoming a Christian looks pretty much the same as from before you were a Christian, there's something wrong with your faith. Are you sure it's alive? Are you sure it's not dead? Look at chapter 2, 14 through 17. He says, what use is it, my brethren? If someone says he has faith, but he has no works, can that faith save him? He doesn't say, can faith save him? He says, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled. Now you do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? Even so faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. We'll say again, salvation is by faith alone and not by works We did seven messages on that one. But salvation is by faith alone. James knows that. But he knows that only by receiving the word implanted will your soul be saved. That's chapter 1 verse 21. But he's making a point. Not all faith is real. It's saving. Only faith saves. But you sure you got the saving kind? Because there's such a thing as a false faith. A phony faith. A dead faith that can't save you. He's guarding them against, you know, the wrong kind of faith. If your faith lives in your mind only, you're no better than the demons. Chapter 2, verse 19. They've got that kind of faith, you know, intellectual assent. They believe lots of truth about God. Some good it does for them. But unless that knowledge is paired with belief such that it results in a new life, it's not faith of the saving variety. You've been mistaken with fool's gold. You've you've got dead faith. Living faith saves. Living faith lives. So in a strong sense, all of James is like this call to examine your faith by examining your life. Do you have a living faith? Question of James is not, do you believe the right things? He's assuming, we're going to assume for now, you believe the right things. That matters. We're just going to assume that for now. You believe the right things, but has that belief transformed you? Is your faith of the saving variety or of the dead variety? Well, how do you live? Are you a doer of the word? Perfectly, no. But living faith well, lives and strives and grows and repents and loves and just presses on in the pursuit of the Lord. Like all living things, it grows. It bears fruit. It gives signs of life. And so is that you. It's good to hear the truth. 
You've heard 41 messages on James. That's good. But you realize that hearing without doing is dangerous. It's not enough to play church, listen to sermons, go about your business. That The truth you hear must be united to faith and then translated into a changed life. Otherwise, the truth becomes a liability. It's kind of like food. Food is a good thing. Without food, you can't live. You can't grow. But food must be digested and turned into energy. It's got to pass through your stomach, through your digestive system, where it's translated into energy, which enables you to, to do work. But what if your stomach was clogged? Food goes in, but it has nowhere to go. It's never digested. It just builds up. It never turns into energy. If that were to happen, then food itself, which is good, would eventually turn into a toxic poison for you. And so it goes with some Christians. The truth is good. The truth is always good. They take it in, but they never digest it. It just sits, and the longer it sits, they just become toxic. They're unhealthy, unfruitful. After all this time going through James, will you heed this call? Examine your life and your faith. Like it says, chapter 2, verse 1, do you have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus? He assumes you do. I, I pray you do. Well, then show it. Imagine there may be some here. Then you may be a true believer, but somewhere along the line, your faith kind of got clogged up. Maybe a partial blockage. Maybe you're compromising with the world. Maybe you're tolerating a large dose of self. But I would pray you'd get just sick and tired of being sick and tired. You know, enough of just playing the Christian game that you'd get so convicted, you'd finally just throw overboard whatever it is in your life that's keeping you back from total devotion to the Lord. And this is the call of James. Why does this matter so much? And why does James care so much? I'll tell you one big reason, maybe the biggest in James, is that he knows only living faith endures. That only living faith endures. You think back to their circumstances and there's no promise that their various trials will go away. You don't find that, I don't find that promise anywhere in scripture that your various trials will go away in in this life. That's not the point. The message is not, you know, come to Jesus by faith and you'll escape all suffering in this life. That's not the message. The message is come to Jesus by faith. You'll escape all suffering in the next life. And for now, though, in a sin-cursed world, various trials remain. And what they need to do, what you need to do, is endure. Well, I'll tell you what, though. Only living faith fights off worldliness. Only living faith is the antidote to selfishness. And only living faith enables steadfastness. Dead faith does not endure. Dead faith does not finish the race. Dead faith doesn't last. It's easy, especially in a culture like this, to follow Jesus, go to church when the seas are smooth, but when the seas get rough, dead faith abandons ship pretty quick. The only living faith endures. 
this matter so much because we're, we're talking about your soul here and your eternal destiny. The Lord is near. The judge is standing right at the door. Chapter 5, verse 9. And James desperately wants to see them have a living faith which works and grows, endures. Because only those who endure will, chapter 1, verse 12, receive the crown which the Lord has promised to those who love him. And so will that be you? Do you love the Lord? Do do you really love him? Or is your love divided? If so, cleanse your hands. You sinners, repent if need be. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Make sure that, that God alone sits on the throne of your heart. And then draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Do you ever feel that something is missing from your life? You Christians feel that time. You get that in the counseling room often enough. Maybe you're just kind of in a funk. You feel off, a little discontent. Just a little, just a little depressed in life. And I'll tell you what, 10 times out of 10, they're right. They feel that way because something is missing in their lives. They're missing something. That's why they're dissatisfied. And I'll tell you what's missing every time. God. They need more of the Lord in their life. They need that white hot passion for the Lord to return. That's what's missing. You know why? Because no one ever, no one ever draws near to the Lord more and says this. That's not enough. I need something else. Can you give me something else? Like God's not enough for me. No one who truly draws near to the Lord ever comes away thirsty or hungry. God is the something more. He's the something missing in your life. So learn from James to draw near and make God and Christ the everything in your life. By this, you will endure all things. And by this, you will enter into the joy of his presence forever. Heed this call to a living faith. We'll be departing from James now, but never depart from this call to a living faith. Let's pray. Our good and gracious God in heaven above, we praise you this morning for your inspired and inerrant word which you've given to us. You chose to do so through the agency of human authors, apostles, and prophets like man James. And how richly we benefit from his words, which we know are truly your words, your message to us. This is what the Lord would have for his church to hear, and to be reminded of. We need sometimes sharp words to convict us, to remind us, to point us back to the narrow way. For indeed, the way is narrow that leads to life. There are few who find it. The path is broad that lead to destruction. And there are many who enter. We want to go down the narrow way. We want to follow Christ. We need these course corrections, these reminders of what the true way is all about. It comes by true faith. And I pray for all here that they are true believers. If any examines themselves and find themselves wanting that, that they may have a dead faith that you would 
convict them, yet then heal them, Lord, by bringing them to a true and living faith that they would come to be sold out in their pursuit of Christ. They would choose today whom to serve and that they would choose Christ and then grow. Convict all of us, Lord, to, to pursue more passionately. This is what this life is about. Yet we're fallen, we're of the flesh still. And so we must pursue, we must press on, we must endure. And for this, we need, we need a, a living and growing faith. Just feed us and fill us as we draw near. That, that's what we need. We need the, the fuel. And we get that by drawing near to you, Lord. So purify your people today. Cleanse us. Set us apart unto yourself and your worship. And that will be blessed. And that will endure. And in that, we will be with you forever. That's our prayer. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.